0: amen good morning everybody should already have in hand a study guide if you do not would you please raise your hand because we will need ushers to get one to you this looks like everybody has one am I seeing that correctly okay well good and uh, those who are meeting down in the core you should have a study guide down there as well. I appreciate uh, Rick Mason uh, taking those down to the core a moment ago. Uh, let me say a few quick things, uh, how this came about, just to repeat very briefly last week. I was going to do a doctrinal class this year, and the staff asked me at a fall planning retreat, if I would consider doing this on a Sunday morning with the number of young people that we have, of new new believers, and also people coming to us from different backgrounds, would I consider doing this on a Sunday morning, hence what we began last week. Uh, my challenge, of course, is to try to keep it very, very simple. If you're looking for a 301 or 401 type class, this can't be that. I would love it to be that, but this can't be that on a Sunday morning because I've got to sort of hit people at all different walks of life. So please understand that if you're looking for something more. Uh, this morning, you see, see on your study guide how we're going to be moving in the conversation. in In the middle of today's presentation, it'll get a little more difficult, uh, but then at the end, it's going to be very simple, very practical. I mean, we're going to talk about Bibles and study Bibles and study aids. And we're going to talk about translations, some very simple things for you uh, this morning. Uh, Now, after this morning, we'll be taking two weeks off, because next week being Palm Sunday, and the week after that, of course, Easter, we'll be just doing normal messages. And then we'll jump back in after Easter with the doctrine of God, which is theology proper. Uh, Theology literally refers to sayings or writings or words about God. So we'll, we'll handle that uh, after Easter. Now, after this morning too, already if you're watching online, you can go under this morning service and you'll see a little block, should say uh, PDF. You can click on that and you can call up the same study guide online that people here in person have. And then everybody, after today, there will be four more documents added to that PDF. There'll be one on the canon of Scripture. I'm going to touch on that very briefly this morning. The canon of Scripture, and I'll explain more about that. I'm going to talk in that little paper about manuscripts and manuscript families and manuscript evidence, that type of stuff. And then there'll also be... uh, One on how our English Bible came about. And then also there will be the complete manuscript of this morning. Not just the abbreviated study guide you have, but everything. So there'll be four PDF documents, okay? So I just wanted to let you know about that. Let's get started this morning. I know we ran short last week. I just want to read again our scripture from last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, beginning in verse 16, uh, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Folks, it's so significant what Paul is doing there in chapter 3. Paul is telling Timothy in chapter 3 that the last days are going to be dangerous times. They're going to be perilous times. And you're going to see all kinds of wickedness and violence and lawlessness and a lack of respect. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And there are going to be those, even some false teachers... Who pick up the mantle of all of that and they wax from worse to worse to worse. But Paul says, Timothy, you've known the sacred writings from your childhood. The writings that lead first of all to salvation. Because the scripture tells us of our need, our sin nature, the problem with humanity, and your problem and my problem, and then the scripture gives us the solution, God's solution, who is Jesus. So scripture, reading the scripture and studying the scripture will lead you to faith in Christ. That's that's the intended outcome. But it's not just salvation, Paul says, the scripture will then lead you in discipleship. It'll correct you, it'll instruct you and train you so that the man or the woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's why he's going to say in chapter 4, Timothy, that's why you're to preach the word. There's going to be some who come along that just Scratch itching ears and tell people what they want to hear, but you need to preach the word. And so, a highly significant section of Second Peter having to do with the doctrine of Scripture, Second uh, Timothy, and then Second Peter at the end of Second Peter one. Paul says, uh, I mean, Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things. It wasn't a man centered message or document, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I want us to jump back in where we left off last week. There's going to be uh, purposely a little bit of an overlap with last week because I ended rather abruptly. So let's jump back in this morning to talking about the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. And I'm going to ask those upstairs if they would go ahead and, yes, thank you inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible you got blanks there on your study page and as I mention these things hopefully they'll come up on the screen and you can not only hear but see up on the screen when we talk about the Bible we we need to talk first of all about the inerrancy because we need to know that we have a book that we can depend upon Now, folks, the doctrine of inspiration is what naturally results in the doctrine of inerrancy. It's precisely because we believe the Bible is God's inspired word that it is inerrant, that is, without error. And of course, when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about scripture in the original manuscripts, we're not talking about translations. We're talking about inerrant in the original manuscripts. I gave you a working definition of inerrancy. The inerrancy of Scripture simply means that Scripture in the original documents does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. And so in its simplest understanding, it just means that the Bible always tells the truth. It always tells the truth about anything that it talks about. Some have tried to say that the Bible is only inerrant concerning matters of faith. But evangelicals believe the doctrine of inerrancy extends to the entire Bible. Nobody is saying, nobody is saying that the Bible is intended to be a history book or a science book. That's not even its intent. But inerrancy does affirm when it speaks to those things. It speaks truthfully. And time and time again through history where somebody would come up and say, did the Bible say this about history? Oh, it was wrong. And then archaeologists will discover some cylinder or manuscript buried deep in the earth, and they'll bring it up, and sure enough, it will be some historical document Uh, out of some ancient kingdom maybe Babylon or Persia or Egypt and what it says is exactly historically what the Bible told us all along. (laughs) You know if the Bible couldn't be trusted in these other matters then how would we know it could be trusted in matters of faith? So again inerrancy extends to the entire Bible. Now As I mentioned last week, I gave you one of those silver dollar words of how it can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary terms or round numbers without jeopardizing inerrancy. We call this phenomenological language. Phenomenological language. And I gave you an example of that. The Bible speaks of the sun rising. Whereas we know, technically, the sun doesn't rise. The earth's rotating. Uh, But how do we talk? We talk about sun rising. So that's how the Bible talks. It talks to us like we talk. Scripture cannot rightly be understood unless we take into consideration that it has dual-sided authorship. Dual-sided. It's not enough to affirm that the Bible is a human witness to divine revelation because the Bible is also God's witness to Himself. And so we must affirm that the Bible is entirely the Word of God and also the words of human authors. It's the Word of God written in the words of men. 2 Timothy 3.16 makes all of this clear as I read a moment ago. And and as the Greek words make clear in 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is the breath of God. It's breathed out, all of it. And then as 2 Peter 1.21 said, men wrote as they were carried along. It's really interesting that word. In the Greek text, carried along, it's the same word used in the later chapters of the book of Acts when Paul was aboard a ship and the the wind, they couldn't control that ship anymore. The wind was catapulting it or carrying it along when they were in that storm. Same word here. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and that's why they wrote what they wrote. What Jesus say about Scripture? In Matthew 5.18, he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a jot, not a dot or a tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. A jot and a tittle in the Hebrew or an uh, iota or dot in, in Greek language, what, he, what he's talking about here is in the original languages, the very smallest marks you could make, a jot, a little marking in the Hebrew, or tittle. I mean, it'd be kind of like in English saying, you know, not even an apostrophe, not even an apostrophe is going to fall to the ground unfulfilled. The smallest little mark in language. Jesus said, all of this that you see, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of God's word. And in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. So what did Jesus think about Scripture? Well, I think those statements say it all. Folks, when you think about The Bible being written over a period of some 1,500 years by 40 or more authors who lived in different places, different countries, who came from different backgrounds, you put all 66 books of the Bible together and they fit together like a glove telling one marvelous meta-narrative, one grand storyline of redemption. What do you have to say about that? It's, it's, It's miraculous. It truly is. We started talking last week about theories of inspiration leading to, to inerrancy. Now, if you do much reading on this in different books, these, these different theories will come by different titles. Different writers have their own titles. But common, common titles, natural inspiration. That's basically some people saying they don't believe the Bible is inspired. The writers of the Bible were men who who didn't need any supernatural help uh, or insight. It's a human book. Do you find people in Christianity holding to that? No, certainly not in mainstream or conservative Christianity. You don't. Then there's the dictation view. This views the other side of the spectrum and holds that God directly dictated every single word to the biblical writers to write. Conservatives don't believe that's the proper view either. Now, are there occurrences of dictation in the scripture? Yeah. God calls Moses up to the mountain and We're told that with the finger of God, he writes the Ten Commandments in those stone tablets and gives them to Moses. There are times that the prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord. There are times that that fits. But it's not the best overall view. The illumination view. This view simply holds that the biblical writers had the Holy Spirit working on them in such a way that their religious insight was elevated then there's degree inspiration all of the Bible is inspired now we're, we're going to come to the one stay tuned the very last one I'm going to give you is the one that evangelicals hold to we're, we're getting there okay degree inspiration all of the Bible is inspired but not equally some parts are more inspired than others You can can see this surfacing in modern times today from time to time. Uh, And we don't affirm this. We affirm that all Scripture is God breathed. Partial inspiration, some parts of the Bible are inspired, other parts simply are not. You see the distinction between degree inspiration and partial inspiration? Degree says it's all inspired, just not equally. Partial says some of it's inspired, some of it's not. And then there's concept inspiration or the dynamic view. The concepts and the ideas in the Bible are God-given, but not the words. And then one view that was popularized, I guess about the middle of the 20th century, the encounter view. Neo-Orthodox writers like Karl Barth, one of the most significant theologians of the 20th century. Neo-Orthodox, you can go online and read all about that. In European circles, it would also be called crisis theology. But anyway, what Karl Barth, Charles Ryrie in his basic theology even refers to the encounter view as the Barthian inspiration view. Showing what impact Karl Barth had on this. And he said there's nothing really more special about the Bible than any other book except that the Holy Spirit is able to use the Bible in a unique way. When the reader reads it, the Holy Spirit causes a particular passage to speak to the heart of the reader. And in that moment, the Bible becomes the Word of God to the reader. And then the view that we affirm, that evangelical Christians affirm, the verbal plenary view. This view sees the Holy Spirit's involvement upon both the writings uh, and the writer. God inspired more than just the thoughts he wanted the biblical writers to communicate. He inspired the words, hence the word verbal. And he inspired all the Bible, plenary, meaning full all of it so this view sees the sovereignty of God extending to the whole process he chose the biblical writers knowing full well their education their vocabulary their background their personality their style etc etc and the sovereignty of God superintended over that whole entire process even down to the words used, without asserting dictation, and also preserving and using the individual writer's personality and experiences. When you read your Baptist Faith and Message 2000 statement, that's our doctrinal statement of Southern Baptist churches. Uh, The last time it was revised was in 63, and then in Orlando, Florida in 2000. It was updated and revised again. So currently, Southern Baptist Churches hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 statement. The verbal plenary view will be the view promoted in your uh, SBC doctrinal statement. Now, when we talk about the Bible, we, we need to understand, obviously, it's classified under special revelation, and it's also progressive in nature. Guys, I think you might need to back up. You don't have that slide. Oh, okay. So it's also progressive in nature. Now, folks, I don't mean progressive like that word is being used in 2021. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. For lack of a better way to put it, it simply means that God didn't put every single thing in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, for instance. Just Boom, you have it all at once. What do you have in the Bible as you read through your Bible, beginning in Genesis, and you read through, and you continue reading through out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant all the way to the end of the Bible? You see God's redemptive plan unfolding. So as we read the Old Testament, we see that man was created in the image of God. First of all, God created everything. Then man was created in the image of God. Then we see the fall of man. Then we see the various covenants that God made with man and how he chose Abraham and his descendants. And he would work in and through them to to bring the law, the sacrificial system for sin. That was a prefiguring for the sacrifice in Christ. Then you have the church being God's chosen vessel to carry the good news to both Jew and Gentile. And then you have God wrapping everything up, destroying Satan and all evil and bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. And so to really understand the Bible, you need to read all of it. You need to see how it fits together, how it progresses along, how it unfolds. Later revelation builds on earlier revelation. And later revelation doesn't contradict earlier. It builds on it. That's what I mean by progressive in nature. Then we also speak today about the perspicuity of Scripture. That's another silver dollar word, right? It just simply refers to clarity. The Bible is not a book where we have to invite a team of linguists and scientists and scholars in today and, you know, please tell us what this means. Now, sure, we might well say that once a person becomes a believer and has the benefit of the Holy Spirit, the light switches definitely turn on. I'm not arguing against that, but anybody who sits down and seriously wants to read the Bible and says, God, help me to read this and understand what I need to understand, for the most part, you can understand it. Again, I'm not saying you're going to understand maybe every detail. If you could, then we wouldn't need the office of of teacher or pastor teacher in the church but as far as understanding that broad redemptive plan of the Bible you can that's the perspicuity of Scripture we even said when we were talking about general revelation we could apply that same term perspicuity to general revelation because in in Psalm 19 and then Romans 1 what's Paul saying in Romans 1 about the creation God has clearly made himself known in the created order so that all men are without excuse. So even in general revelation, as telling us that God's there, we could speak of perspicuity. Now how important is the doctrine of inerrancy to the church? You think it's important? very important we need to understand that we're holding in our hands God's word to us that tells us about our need our sin and how to be saved and it gives to us God's wisdom how we ought to be living our lives what we ought to be doing with our time and talents and energy what we ought to be living for when we sit down in counseling, for instance, with somebody, and maybe they're facing something in their marriage, it, you know, to be able to turn to the Scripture and say, here's what God's Word says. That's, that's critical. That's critical for everyday ministry. Isaiah 55, 10-11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. And so how could we summarize God's word? What's it do? It restores the soul. Psalm 19, 7a. It makes wise the simple. Psalm 19 7b, it gives joy to the heart, it gives light to the eyes. You've got all those blanks there. You can fill, fill those in. I've put those on the same slide. You know, in Romans 10 and James 1 and 1 Peter 1, the Bible points out that the scripture is the instrument that God uses for conversion. What's Paul say in Romans 10:17? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word of God. James and Peter both talk about God's Word that's able to save you. Receive the implanted Word that's able to save you. Because, again, it's in the Scripture that we learn these things. In, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, it, it, we see that it also gives reproof, correction, instruction, and training in righteousness. Now, folks, I'm gonna, I might hurry through this next part. Because again, I'm going to give you that document, Uh, the canon of Scripture. When we talk about canon of Scripture, we're not talking about that big black iron tube rolling around on wheels that shoots the big iron balls out that they shot against their enemy in the Civil War. We're talking about canon, C-A-N-O-N. What's that word mean? It refers to the accepted and authoritative rule or standard over which books are included in our Bible. So we would say that our canon of Scripture is how many books? 66 books, exactly. Now, just some general conclusions. Writings after 435 B.C. were not accepted by the Jewish people in general as having equal authority with the rest of Scripture. Talking about the Old Testament here. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, we have no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the canon. Apparently, there was full agreement between Jesus and his disciples and the religious leaders, and the general population. That additions to the Old Testament had ceased after the time of Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Esther, and Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi. And this fact is also confirmed by the quotations of Jesus and the New Testament authors from the Old Testament. According to one count, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote various parts of the Old Testament scriptures as divinely authoritative over 295 times, but not once do they cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha or any other writings as having divine authority. So what can we say about the Apocrypha? Because after all, if you come out of a Roman Catholic background... uh, you probably have a Bible that has the apocrypha in it, and you've come into a, a Protestant church and, and a Baptist church, and you know if we don't have the Puerack Bibles out, but you go in most bookstores. Day you buy a Bible, and it's just the sixty-six books; it doesn't have the apocrypha in it. Let me say that these books were never—believe it or not—these books. Were never accepted by Jews as Scripture. The earliest Christian evidence is decidedly against viewing the Apocrypha as Scripture. Only in some regions of the church did these writings grow in popularity up to the time of the Reformation. The earliest Christian list of Old Testament books that exists today is by Melito, the Bishop of Sardis, writing about 170 A.D. Now, it's noteworthy that Melito names none of the books of the Apocrypha, but he includes all of our present Old Testament books with the exception of Esther. Poor Esther. She didn't get accepted until later on. And there are reasons for that, but... The early church historian Eusebius also quotes Origen, an early church father, as affirming most of the books of our present Old Testament canon, including Esther, but no book of the Apocrypha is affirmed as canonical, and the books of Maccabees are explicitly said to be outside of these canonical books. Now, also, when the, when the great church leader, Athanasius, great church leader, Bishop of Alexandria, when he wrote his Easter letter, referred to as his Paschal letter, in 367 AD, he listed all of the books of our present New Testament canon and all the books of our present Old Testament canon, again, with the exception of Esther. He also mentioned some of the books of the Apocrypha and said, These are, quote, not indeed included in the canon, but appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and who wish for instruction in the word of godliness, end quote. Now, there are some problems with these books. There are some inaccuracies in them, and then they teach some things that are contradictory to the 66 books of the Bible. For instance, they teach salvation by works. They will encourage deception and falsehood. They also encourage the giving of alms for atonement of sin. And they also talk about how God hears the prayers of the dead. And so they are not regarded as Scripture. Protestants don't believe they're regarded as Scripture based on Four following main points. Number one, they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority that the Old Testament writings do. Second, they were not regarded as God's word by the Jewish people from whom they originated. Thirdly, they were not considered to be Scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. And fourth, they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Now, folks, they do include some some fascinating facts of things that happened between the testaments those 400 silent years between the old testament and the new testament those years were anything but silent and these writings that grew up in that period of time that they they talk about some of those events you know the maccabean revolt uh for instance fascinating to read uh so i'm not saying they don't tell us anything they tell some some interesting historical stuff but Christians today should have no worries that any of God's words have been left out of the Old Testament scriptures that we need we can have confidence now as far as the New Testament canon by the way for maybe some of our college students Right here in the Charlotte metro area over at Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, the president there, Dr. Michael Kruger, he's one of the noted authorities in the world today on the New Testament canon. So you want to talk about a good speaker maybe for a college group on the New Testament canon, we've got a fantastic source here locally. But anyway, the first list of canonical books that contains the 27 books currently accepted appears, once again, in Athanasius' uh, 39th Paschal Letter of 367 AD. This was the list of books accepted by the churches in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. The first church council to list all 27 books of the New Testament was the Council of Carthage in AD 397. And this council also represented the churches in the western part of the Mediterranean world. And so both east and west were in perfect agreement as to the books that should make up the New Testament canon. But let me correct a misunderstanding you'll hear sometimes, that the books of our Bible were quote-unquote voted in by certain church councils. They did not. They simply recognized books that were already considered authoritative in being used in the churches. They only recognized that. They didn't vote on what books were going to end up in our Bible. Now, as far as the New Testament canon is concerned, the following tests were used. One, was the book authored or sanctioned by an apostle or a prophet? Two, was the book widely circulated? Three, was the book Christ centered? Fourth, was the book orthodox, that is, faithful to the teachings of the apostles? Fifth, did the book give internal evidence of its unique character as inspired and authoritative? Now, using this process, books were included in the canon if they were believed to be inspired. And in the West, apostolic origin was the guiding principle while inspiration was the guiding principle in the East. Now, of course, these are not mutually exclusive. And apostolic writing was considered inspired And an inspired writing was believed to have been written by an apostle. Now, again, in the end, no book was widely disputed. No book that was widely disputed, I should say, made it into the canon. And no book that was widely accepted is absent from the canon. Now, let me get into something I think is going to be very helpful to some of you, I hope. Study Bibles and Bible Aids for the layman. You know, today, if anything, we could say we have an embarrassment of riches, don't we? We truly do. Now, I'm simply going to give you some of my favorites. We could have different people stand, I'm sure, in the congregation, and you would have other favorites. I'm just giving you some some very good ones. If you're choosing... a a study Bible and I think everybody ought to choose a good study Bible I love the ESV study Bible it's got extensive book introductions it's got commentary notes at the bottom of each page helping to explain the verses and passages on that page and also at the back of it it's got numerous articles it's even got a little section back there on systematic theology and on Christian ethics man the ESV study Bible is loaded with all kinds of stuff I I know a number of our people have that Bible raise your hand a minute if you have the ESV study Bible tons of people yes okay another great one is the NIV Zondervan study Bible and on this one please include the word Zondervan and you'll understand why in a minute okay The NIV Zondervan Study Bible that D.A. Carson is the editor of. Here again, in in this one you have some of the very best book introductions and commentary notes on each page to be found in any study Bible. It has loads and loads of theological articles that covers tons of background issues. I mean, it's it's loaded with stuff. If I had to pick a single favorite of mine, it would be a close running with the ESV study Bible, but this one may, if, if I was going to be stranded on a deserted island, could only have one study Bible, it would probably be this one. Excellent study Bible. And a great thing about it, too, these study Bibles that I've mentioned here, and most of them today, you can also go on your digital device and go to your app store and, you know, buy them even cheaper that way. So they're, they're available that way. Now, the reason I said a while ago... Put the word Zondervan in there because another favorite of mine, the NIV Study Bible. See the words, it's it's still by Zondervan. Am I confusing you yet? But Zondervan is not in the title of it. This one is edited by Kenneth Barker. This one right here. The new revised version of it out. it's just as helpful as the previous two i'm going to say probably the notes in the previous two might be at a little deeper richer level i don't know i mean these notes are still good now what people love about this bible is the maps and the color on every page and all i mean wow this this is a really engaging bible to read very pleasing to the eye, and, and again, all the study stuff in it. A fifth is the life application study Bibles, and you can get these in just about any translation. In recent years, these have become bestsellers. Raise your hand if you got one of these, one of the Life Application Study Bibles. Okay. Now, the book introductions and the study notes are not quite as extensive and detailed in this one as in the previous ones I've mentioned. The study notes concentrate, just as the title of this Bible says, on application of the life, uh, of the, the passage to everyday life. So again, you're going to lose something in in the life application study Bibles. You're going to lose something of the depth and the richness and the information in the notes. Because where they're going to concentrate is life application of that passage. So again, somewhat of a difference there. A sixth one that you can go online right now and access the Net Bible. You can visit bible.org or netbible.com. And if in your Sunday school class, let's say you're studying the book of Philippians and want everybody to have the same copy, you you can actually download and print off a thousand copies of the Net Bible without even asking permission. Or you can go on netbible.com and you can buy a, a hardbound or a leatherbound copy. Now, let me caution you something about the Net Bible. The commentary notes on each page of the Net Bible are different from the commentary notes in the previous Bibles that I've mentioned. There's over 60,000 notes that help you to see how the translators made their decisions over various words or phrases or manuscripts. So if you're looking for the type of note that helps you explain that passage that you've just read, you're probably going to want to go with one of the other study Bibles. But if you want to know how translators made decisions over the text itself then this bible is superb so for laymen, if you get a net bible as your study bible i'm going to recommend that you get one of the other study bibles also you know i would recommend anybody have one of the others the esv the niv zondervan their niv study bible or life application Get one of those and get this one. I just don't know that I would recommend this one to be your only stay Bible because the notes are of an entirely different nature. By the way, the favorite Bible of Bible translators today, when you read at the beginning of your Bible about the translation teams and all the various scholars who worked on that translation, the net Bible is the, favorite Bible of Bible translators today because in addition to working from the original biblical languages they will also consult the net Bible let me also recommend that you get a good Bible atlas the ESV Bible atlas it's a massive size book I'll warn you it, it's probably the best I've seen. Excellent material. Very informative with maps pertaining to the biblical text. Notes about certain periods of history and lands and sites and people throughout the Bible times. Very fascinating information in the ESV Bible Atlas that you won't find in just the typical commentary. It might tell you some things pertaining to that particular area or that particular city or or whatever that you don't find in other places. Another excellent Bible atlas would be the Holman Bible Atlas by Thomas Briscoe. This isn't quite as big, it's easier to manage. One of the best professors I ever had in college or in seminary was Thomas Briscoe. I mean, he was he was one of those top-tier professors. Cream of the crop. And just as good a writer. So the Holman Bible Atlas by Thomas Briscoe. Excellent. A good Bible dictionary. The Holman Illustrated... Bible Dictionary, the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary is superb. Now, folks, I know when you hear the word dictionary, probably what comes to your mind is what? Word definitions. That's not what you get here. A Bible Dictionary is basically like an encyclopedia. It's going to tell you all kinds of valuable information about people, places, and events. I mean, in the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, you want to read about the temple in Jerusalem, you can turn to the temple and, man, page after page after page on the temple, everything you want to know about the temple. Fascinating information. So those are very helpful. Next, an exhaustive concordance. And I realize you can go online and do most of this today through an online concordance. At the back of your Bible, if you've got a study Bible, at the back of your Bible, you've got a concordance. that will tell you the different places in the Old and New Testament that that particular word was used. Those are very abbreviated in the back of your Bible. The difference with an exhaustive concordance is it's going to tell you, if you pick a word, let's say you want to look at the word atonement, It's going to give a complete list of every single time that word is used in all 66 books of the Bible. It's exhaustive. And then lastly, let me talk about get a good one-volume Bible commentary. I recognize you are not going to buy commentaries the way I buy commentaries. I don't buy sets because sets are very unbalanced. You'll have great writers and not so great writers. I choose commentaries based on the author. So if I'm going through Romans, I'll find the very best commentaries on the book of Romans. And of course, the commentaries I like are those that would be recommended in a seminary class. And Again, I, you know, most of you are probably not going to have walls and walls of commentaries. I told you last week how my wife says I'm a book addict. I've got walls and walls of bookshelves of books and commentaries. You're not going to buy them that way. People have been coming to me and saying, Scott, give me one good single-volume commentary on the whole Bible. Now, you've got to realize when you buy a one-volume commentary on the whole Bible... There's a limitation of what the writers can say on any one passage because they're trying to fit all all the Bible in on one commentary. So please realize it's limitations. But the new Bible, write down the new Bible commentary. The new Bible commentary. You can go on Amazon, have this delivered to your doorstep. And I'm not promoting Amazon. I'm just saying you can go on Amazon and have it delivered to your doorstep. This one is edited guy, uh, by by several guys uh, Wenham, W E N H A M, W E N H A M, Moitier, M O T Y E R. They kind of did the Old Testament, editing of the Old Testament. Then D.A. Carson and R.T. France were the editors of New Testament. But. If if you were to ask me the best of the best one volume out there the New Bible commentary Another excellent one would be the Baker Illustrated Bible Commentary the Baker Illustrated Bible Commentary edited by Gary Burge Burge is B U R G E and Andrew Hill Gary Burge and Andrew Hill the Baker Illustrated Bible Commentary So there's two options a lot more of you here recently, probably in the past year, I've had more people ask me about a good one-volume commentary than any other years I've been here. People have been interested in so that's two good ones. Let's jump over into translations. Translations. This may be one of the most misunderstood areas today in the church. Folks, there are all kinds of factors involved in translation to mean that, that there is not one perfect translation. It's best to read the Bible in several translations. Now, obviously, I know you're going to have your favorite translation that you carry around or have on your device But particularly if you're a teacher in the church, have several translations that you consult. Something we need to understand, oftentimes there is not an equivalent word in the receptor language to the source language. People will say, if this is the Hebrew word, give me the English word. This is the Greek word, give me the English word. There's not always an equivalent word from one language to another. And so when you hear, I want a literal translation, there, there is no such thing. You know, in one language, a particular word may mean something altogether even different in another language. And so translators have to search for the best word or phrase to communicate what was actually being said. And in some cases, they simply don't have a good option. They have to pick the best. Also, words have a range of meanings. If somebody says, Give me the literal meaning of a word, well, let me ask you something. Give me the literal meaning of the word key. K E Y. And by the way, what I'm giving you, you can go on YouTube, Dr. Mark Strauss out of Bethel Seminary in San Diego. You can find this whole discussion on there too, and I've given you that, I think, in your notes. The word key. Somebody somebody give me the literal definition of the word key. Okay. A key, right? Well that's a key, right? Is that it? No? How about the keyboard on your computer? If you're a teacher, you probably have an answer key right if you're a teacher you probably make a key point I mean we could keep going on and on and on with other applications of just the word key so if you were going to translate the word key what would you what would you have to determine along with the word key to see which meaning of the word key you were to Communicating. Context. Thank you. Thank you. As Dr. Mark Strauss will say, if you either answer Jesus or context to any question, probably you got a pretty good chance of hitting it right. (laughs) You know, somebody says, give me the literal meaning of Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we forgot about context, then we're just, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and looked at the Greek words, and we're not even thinking about New Testament context or anything. Here would be one acceptable translation of that, okay? The source of the news about Josh who was smeared with oil, You'd say, is that a literal translation of Mark 1.1? Yeah. The source of the news about Josh who was smeared with oil. Is that what Mark one is saying? Absolutely not. Also, different cultures and languages have their own idioms, which are sayings or expressions unique to that particular culture at that particular time. In Spanish, to be bread-eaten, to be bread-eaten, what's that mean? It's a piece of cake, it's easy. Another idiom, he doesn't have hairs on his tongue. That's a pretty good thing, right? Not to have hairs on your tongue? What's that mean? He's a straight shooter. To be made a chili, What, what would that mean in English? To be hopping mad you see how different languages and different people groups have different idioms if you're if you're translating over into English from one of those would you say he doesn't have hair on his tongue no you'd say he's a straight shooter so you you can't always just replace exact words here again to quote Dr. Mark Strauss translations as you'll see near the end of that and I'm almost done here but they they go on the scale from formal equivalency which is more literal to functional equivalency or dynamic equivalency which is trying to capture the meaning you take a formal equivalent translation ESV very good translation one of my favorites but mark 1 2 behold I send my messenger before your face I send my messenger before your face. You take something like the NIV, what's it say? I will send my messenger ahead of you. What I say to Connie, if we were eating out this afternoon, we're not, but if we were, uh, Connie, I might get tied up after church. So I'm going to send you to the restaurant before my face. <laughs> get us a table. Put in our order. No, I'd say, go ahead of me. Second Samuel 18.25, if he is alone, there's news in his mouth. That would be the New King James, the New American Standard Bible, the ESV. If he is alone, there's news in his mouth. News in his mouth. Is there a copy of the Wall Street Journal in his mouth? Let me give you the NIV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If he is alone, he must have good news. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, if he is alone, he bears good news. See how much better that communicates? How about Amos 4.2? I gave you cleanness of teeth. I gave you cleanness of teeth. New American Standard or the ESV. I gave you cleanness of teeth. Did the prophet pass out toothbrushes and toothpaste? Other translations, functional, will say, I gave you empty stomachs in every city. Or I gave you no food. You see what I'm saying? Every culture has idioms or sayings. When you translate them into the receptor language, translators have to wrestle how do I best communicate this to this audience? Because we may not understand the idioms or the sayings that that culture had at that time. I've given you a chart. Translations fall on a scale from formal equivalency to functional equivalency. You see that back page? Now folks, I you know, I I love the literal one. The NAS the NASB is such a literal translation. I mean as as much as you can be literal, because again, you can't translate from one language to another always literally, because of reasons I've just expressed. But in seminary, what guys will try to get away with is because they tra- the NAS translators tried so hard to preserve the Greek words, the Greek syntax, everything, that they call, they call it using a pony, riding a pony. Guys will hide the NASB underneath their Greek New Testament if you're called on in class to read something. Because if it's a participle in the Greek, the NASB, have a participle. If it's an infinitive, they'll have an infinitive. If it has an ingressive nature to it or something, or uh, some action that's just beginning, I mean, it'll preserve, it'll tell you that. You can read the NASB and you can pretty well tell the parts of speech and the Greek verse and everything. But again, it's, it's not considered exactly a wonderful English translation as far as hearing it. But I, I love translations like that. The NASB, the RSV, New RSV, ESV, King James Version, New King James Version, all of those would be examples of formal equivalency. The NIV, HCSB, CSB, and the NET are somewhere in the middle. The NLT, the Message, J.B. Phillips Translation, you don't see many J.B. Phillips New Testaments today. Those are more functional. You may want to read a Bible passage out of a formal equivalency and then read one out of a functional equivalency and just and just see i love to sit down and just read chapter after chapter after chapter out of the nlt the new the scholars and and it was quite a blue ribbon committee of scholars you look in the intro pages of the nlt i mean they got world-class scholars on each book of the bible who, they, they took the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase instead of a translation, and made the NLT more of an actual translation of the formal equivalent. Um, functional equivalency. But you sit down and read it, man, you can just find yourself reading chapter after chapter after chapter in that. Uh, but then you're also, if you're studying to teach class, you're probably going to also want to read it and study it out of like the NASB or the ESV. So get both. Try both. And you'll see how they handle different words and different idioms. Well, we've got to close. I'm late already. I hope that's been somewhat helpful. Dealing with Bible study aids, Bible translations. But again, what I say last week, None of this is going to do you and me a bit of good. If you, you, rem, you remember what Augustine said he heard in the garden? Augustine, the fourth century theologian who was, lived as a pagan and then got saved, one of the greatest theologians of the church. What he said he heard in the garden? Tolo lege, Tolo lege, Take up and read take up and read and there was a Bible and he turned to Romans 13 and started reading and God used that passage to convert him tolo lege take up and read if you and I don't take up and read all of this is for naught you got to read your Bible and you ought to have some kind of plan where you're reading through the whole counsel of God. Just don't get on your little hobby horses of certain passages or chapters or books. See that unfolding plan of God across all 66 books of the Bible. Folks, if we're going to get to know God, how does God reveal Himself to us? Through His Word. You know God, what He's like, His attributes, his characteristics, how he works with people. You see that on the pages of Scripture. How he deals with the saints of God on the pages of Scripture. Because he's the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. That's how he deals with us. If we're going to know God, who he really is, and what he's like, and how he works, we've got to read our Bibles to discover that. And in the Bible, we have the opportunity of seeing how the sovereign God of the universe wants to communicate with you and me. So we can know him and walk in faithfulness to him and be about his mission in the world. So tolo lege, take up and read. And some of you this morning need to make a renewed commitment to do just that. Would you stand, please?